0: Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a Nobel laureate who pioneered the use of directed evolution to engineer enzymes. So
1: nature is the ultimate crowdsourcer of problem solving. Given a challenge, life always finds a way. And that means that nature is always innovating and always gaining new functions.
0: That was Frances Arnold, Professor of Chemical Engineering at the California Institute of Technology. She spoke to my colleague, Anjana Ahuja, about her long career, the challenges faced by women in science, and the aha moment that ultimately led to her Nobel Prize.
2: Frances, do people treat you differently now that you're a Nobel laureate?
1: Oh, some do. Good news is that my children actually do their dishes (laughs) instead of leaving them for me. And what about professionally? Well, I think there are some people who think that once you have a Nobel Prize, you're something special.
2: But they haven't yet gotten all of the, the reality in there. That's amazing. Now, I want to go back to your childhood. I read that you were a real rebel, that you played truant at school, that you moved away from home quite young as a teenager, and that you worked as a waitress. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I grew up in the 60s and 70s when our cities were burning, there were race riots, there were protests against the Vietnam War, and... Well, the slogan was, don't trust anyone over 25. So everyone was a rebel in some way. It was the time to be a rebel, to question the status quo, to question the decisions that our parents had made that led us to this
2: place. Would it be fair to say you had conventional parents?
1: I had very conventional (laughs) parents, yes, and they didn't know how to deal with this whole era Not everyone was protesting, of course, and they certainly didn't go to the extremes that I did to remove myself from my family environment. Uh, But it was the time when, when young people questioned who they were and what they were doing. But you still,
2: after all that, made it to Princeton to do mechanical engineering and aerospace engineering. How did that come about? Because your father was a scientist.
1: My father was a nuclear physicist. He worked in the nuclear industry. He actually designed some of the key components of the first commercial nuclear reactors. Um, So I think we were always embedded in a science atmosphere. I also had four brothers with whom to compete constantly. (laughs) I was good at math and I felt very comfortable with math and calculations and engineering and building things working with my hands. So it wasn't a surprise that I went into engineering. What was a surprise is that I did get into Princeton,
2: considering (laughs) my grades weren't all that great. And did you find that you flourished there? Oh, I did,
1: yes. It was a wonderful environment. I took mechanical and aerospace engineering because it had the fewest requirements. This was a big secret, but it was mostly applied math, and there weren't that many courses that were absolutely required. So I could take Italian and Russian literature and economics and art history and this was encouraged at this wonderful liberal art school. Mm. They taught me how to read and write. I already knew how to do math
2: but <laughs> <laughs> it was and useful
1: to read and write.
2: And I read that you're a linguist, you have a fondness for languages. How many do you speak? Oh well I don't
1: speak them very well but I lived in Italy, I lived in Spain, Brazil so I spoke all of those languages. I still can get by in, in those and course I can fake it in French.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And then you moved into solar engineering when you left Princeton and how did you go from that into the work that ultimately made your reputation?
1: My interest was in alternative energy and sustainability back in the 1970s. We had an oil embargo, oil crises at that time. We remember cars lined up around the block because the gasoline supplies were low, and it was clear we needed to change our behavior with respect to energy use. The Solar Energy Research Institute was a brand new national laboratory established in the Carter administration to really deal with our national goal of 20% renewable energy by the year 2000. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work on that. Of course, then Reagan was elected in 1981, yes. and and I needed a new career because it was very clear that the commitment to renewable energy was going to change. The cars were getting really long again yes. and heavy, and people forgot what it was like uh, to conserve. I went to graduate school, which is often what young people do when they don't know what (laughs) else to do with themselves. No, I actually knew what I wanted to do, and I went to work on alternative energy research Hmm. at Berkeley in chemical engineering. But I found myself at the beginning of the DNA revolution in this wonderful place full of ideas and full of possibilities.
2: What a place to land in. Yes. So you end up doing this chemical engineering. Now, can you tell us what chemical engineering is and how it relates to the work that you do
1: chemical engineering is the engineering of chemically reacting systems everything from the atmosphere pollution in the atmosphere is a big chemistry problem uh, all the way to oil pipelines chemical reactors making the food textiles materials fuels that we need in our daily lives that's the discipline of chemical engineering that deals with those reacting systems. But I wanted to be an engineer of a different chemical system, the systems of life. We're all just a bag of chemicals that are interacting with each other. And now that in the 70s, these first tools for manipulating life, rewriting the code of DNA to change how life's chemistry goes forward, those tools were just becoming available. So imagine this young, want-to-be chemical engineer at the beginning of this revolution, this technology revolution. Companies like Genentech and Amgen were startups at the time. <laughs> they were just little companies. And, and it was very, very exciting. It was a whole new technology that was just becoming
2: available. And how did you hit on the idea of directed evolution?
1: That didn't come until I took my first independent position as an assistant professor at Caltech in Southern California. I wanted to rewrite the code of life, but I didn't know how to do it. (laughs) This was the big challenge. No one knows how to compose DNA. We can read it, we can write it, we can edit it, but no one knows how to compose this marvelous symphony that's the code of life. It took billions of years of evolution to create what we see around us today. No one sat down with a pencil and designed it. So I looked at the process that nature had used to compose it, evolution, and said, well, if I can't compose it, I know who can, and I can use that process to my benefit to make new molecules, make new chemical systems that will serve human beings instead of the organism that invented them in the first place. So it's almost harnessing the power of nature to make the chemicals that you want. Well, think about it. Nature's the best chemist. Nature's the best engineer. All you have to do is look at trees, look at insects, look at the natural world, and you see a level of intricacy and efficiency that we cannot even begin to mimic in human-engineered systems. So why not? Use her method it all came about through that I believe that we can use evolution to move into a future that begins to have some of the benefits that
2: nature has so let's try and unpick that concept of what you actually did in the lab so you're very associated with work on enzymes, could you tell us what an enzyme is, what it does and how you changed it to make it better
1: I fell in love with enzymes when I first studied biochemistry. These are a class of proteins that are responsible for all the chemistry of life. They catalyze all the reactions that break down your food and that make your muscles, that make leaves, that cause insects to talk to each other. Enzymes are involved in all this chemistry. If you want to build new chemistry, or make them perform in a human-engineered system. So imagine having these beautiful catalysts doing chemistry for us, using renewable resources and producing little waste and recycling everything. Wouldn't that be a chemical industry that we could all get behind? So I wanted to breed new enzymes, much like we breed
2: cats and dogs. Is that kind of a selective breeding, choosing enzymes that work in a particular way and making mutations as i understand that's right so
1: farmers have been breeding cows and chickens and dog breeders breed dogs racehorses are bred by choosing who who are the parents and who goes on to parent the next generation based on traits that come out to the observer to the breeder well i breed molecules the same way so i'll choose dna to start with I'll make random changes in that. I'll recombine it from different species in the test tube, of course. And then I will see what that DNA, what that new DNA creates, and see whether it has new
2: traits that are useful. New properties that you know will be applicable outside the lab.
1: That's right. Does it catalyze this desirable reaction? Does it stop making waste products? Is it faster? Is it more robust?
2: So tell me about the aha moment when you realized you had created something that really was special.
1: It was more an aha month (laughs) than a moment. Now it seems so obvious, but back then people just thought that was not a very good idea, that if we were really smart, we could sit down and design. And a lot of people still feel that way, but they just don't know how to design. I'm an engineer, I want to make things, and I want to do it in my lifetime, maybe even a few weeks. So I said, I'm going to show you that this works, and the aha month came when I saw not only that it worked in real time, it didn't take a billion graduate students a billion years, that was not required. You could do it in simple experiments in the laboratory in a few days, and then The solutions that came out of this, the mutations that were beneficial, no one could even explain them, much less predict them. So I knew that my
2: naysayers and the skeptics would never be able to catch up with me. So you had created in a few days, through your selective breeding of proteins, this particular enzyme Mm -hmm. that could do something brilliant. And what was it that it could do? Well, it wasn't all that brilliant.
1: I chose a problem that no one knew what it would take to create an enzyme to work in a highly non-natural environment. Enzymes work inside of cells. There's lots of water there. It's pH, neutral pH. It's really just easygoing environment. But I made enzymes that worked in organic solvents, non-water environments that normally would cause the enzyme to completely give up the ghost. They would never work, they unfolded, Mm -hmm. they didn't function anymore. But I trained these enzymes, I bred them, to tolerate environments that you might find on other planets or that you might find in a chemical factory. Extremo enzymes. (laughs) Definitely. And extreme in a way that you would not find in nature. And I, I chose that because I wanted to demonstrate that biology, the natural world, can learn very, very quickly to do something we would consider quite novel and unnatural. She doesn't care. If it becomes beneficial, or if I give it that selective pressure, proteins can take on all sorts of interesting new properties and traits what applications are they used for now Oh, my goodness. Enzymes, people would be surprised to know that everything from your laundry detergents, if you look on the box, powered by enzymes, no self-respecting natural enzyme wants to work in a laundry machine. (laughs) So they evolve them in the laboratory to take stains off of clothes in harsh environments. People make a lot of pharmaceuticals using enzymes, reducing Mm -hmm. the wastes of these chemical manufacturing processes many-fold. And that's the benefit, because it costs less to use enzymes. It produces a lot less environmental degradation. People make jet fuels with enzymes out of biomass. We can use them in clinical diagnostics, as medicines themselves. There's really thousands of applications. If you can make the enzyme that does the job well.
2: I've read before that you have a vision that this kind of chemical engineering can save the planet or at least keep things ticking over sustainably when we've got so many mouths to feed and so on. So what do you think would be the most beneficial applications come the future?
1: My vision is that we will learn how to do chemistry the way nature does it, using renewable
0: Resources
1: rather than pumping oil out of the ground. We have to learn how to take carbon from the atmosphere. We have to reuse things that we can't easily get. And nature is very good at that. Her chemistry is so efficient and so selective and so clean. So my vision is chemical industry based on renewable resources where genetically encoded catalysts, maybe bacteria or yeasts, can do the transformations that... Produce all these products that we want in
2: our lives. Tell me about your companies that you founded on the back of this technology. What are they aiming to do? One of
1: the companies that we founded already 15 years ago, Jivo, and I'm no longer associated with them, but they make jet fuels from renewable resources. So aviation fuel, we have to reduce the carbon footprint of of aviation. And one way to do that is take the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that's stored in plant material and convert that to the fuels. And then when the fuel is burned, it goes back in the atmosphere, but you have this circular system. That company still is in business. It's very hard to make money. We can make a lot of aviation (laughs) fuel, but it's very hard to make money because the feedstocks are still expensive, and it's hard to compete with oil right now. Right. The other company we founded recently in 2013, Provivi, makes insect pheromones. And why would you do that? (laughs) Insect pheromones. These are the (laughs) chemical substances they use to find each other for mating. Mm -hmm. So... Imagine this, it's like a little Chanel number five. You spray this insect <laughs> Chanel number five in a field, and the males are all confused. They know she's there, but they can't find her, so they can't mate in the field. And if you don't mate, these moths don't have caterpillars, and they I don't see. eat your corn. And imagine replacing pesticides with something like that. And we're doing that all over the world now. We have field trials in China, Indonesia, South America. It's looking very good. And most recently, we started another company just this year to provide enzymes for the pharmaceuticals industry to reduce the waste of manufacturing. Are there any concerns over the use of such technology? I think there can be concerns, because you could, in principle, create something in the laboratory that's more infectious than a natural flu virus, for example, or you could create a protein that makes something toxic. I think we all have to deal with the cost versus benefit. Nature is very good at making things that will kill us. (laughs) Smallpox is pretty bad, and I don't think I could make anything even beginning to be as bad as that. And the other thing is proteins are not self-replicating. They're only a problem in what people would do with them in, say, self-replicating systems. I don't work on anything like that, but it is not
2: inconceivable that these technologies could be used for nefarious purposes. But presumably the cost-benefit ratio for enzymes that could green a whole sector. I look at the major benefits that come from this technology,
1: especially if it's used in a way that's not going to self-replicate. I think we have to consider the costs and the benefits, and for me the benefits far outweigh what uh, costs you could conceivably come up with that I've never seen myself. Do
2: you think engineering, chemical engineering, any type of engineering, gets the kind of credit it deserves? From whom? Generally. (laughs) In general? Yes.
1: Well, I think a lot of people don't know what creativity goes into making what they use. We almost take it for granted that the products we use will be available. We don't worry enough how they're made and what are the hidden costs of making these things. So I'd like people to know more about that and especially would love to see more young people use their creativity to learn how to do that better.
2: Where were you when you got that all-important call
1: from Stockholm? I was sound asleep in a hotel room in Dallas, Texas, I was due to give an important lecture the next day, uh, and I had arrived very late at night, one o'clock in the morning. And the phone rang at four o'clock in the morning. From and I, I always leave my phone on because I have children at home. And this lovely voice says, "Can you hold for the Secretary General of the Royal Swedish Academy?" And I'm sitting there thinking, "Of course I can." Yes. <laughs> it was it it was very exciting but then I couldn't call home because no one answered the phone I leave my phone on but my children don't answer the phone when I call them so it was several hours later that I finally got to tell somebody and what was their reaction oh they were my boys were very surprised and and pleased and what about your colleagues
2: must have been thrilled
1: they were calling me right away. My colleagues knew before my sons. And,
2: and how did you feel at that moment? I mean, when you put the phone down again, after you'd had that call, could you go back to sleep? I,
1: oh, no, my goodness. You get this rush of adrenaline, and I knew it was going to be a very long day. So I was woken up at four in the morning Dallas time, which is two in the morning California time, and the first thing I had to do was find a flight home, because... We had to do a press conference and all of that. So I, I was debating whether to take a shower or have coffee in the 20 minutes between the first phone call and the second press conference phone call. And I went for the shower because I knew the day would be very long. And I'm glad that I did. Wow.
2: And did you give your Dallas lecture? No.
1: I, I couldn't possibly stay that long, no. but the president of the university where I was to speak came and took me to breakfast and tried to convince me to stay in Texas and said I would be well-treated if I decided to stay and make my career in Texas.
2: Wow. That's <laughs> well, amazing. If you weren't an engineer, what would you be doing, do you think? I honestly don't know, because I haven't
1: been anything but an engineer for a very long time. But I would love to be a chef.
2: (laughs) Any particular kind? Good food.
1: (laughs) I'd like to make things that benefit people. I I love music, and I'm not good enough at at making music to, to make a living at it. That's why I chose what I was good at. Uh, But I would like to do something beautiful for people. I find engineering is a good way to do that.
2: Do you have any unfulfilled ambitions?
1: I try not to have unfulfilled ambitions. And that way I can be happy every day.
2: May I ask about your resilience? Because you are, obviously, ever since you were very young, you've had this incredible resilience, this ability to stand on your own two feet. But you've also faced personal adversity in your life. And you've lost people very close to you. How do you come back from those kind of really serious traumatic events to be the brilliant scientist that you are?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think anyone reaches my age without having some adversity in life. And there are many who have much more adversity, who have faced much bigger problems than I have faced. Uh, So I don't think that it's terribly useful to feel sorry for oneself and luckily I just wasn't born that way. I have a positive view and it makes me happy to be doing something, to be doing something useful. That's just the way that I that I'm made up.
2: So you hear Francis for an awards dinner from the Royal Academy of Engineering. There are many awards being given, but one of the notable ones is for young engineers of the year. And tonight, for the first time in the Royal Academy's history, the five awards to the five most promising young engineers of the year are all going to women. That's quite a landmark, isn't it? Isn't that marvelous?
1: Well, of course, it's a small number, but I love to see that the women are competing at the highest levels. They're entering the field, they're doing well, And they are putting themselves forward
2: for these awards and winning them. Isn't that marvellous? Why do you think there are so few women in engineering generally? I think in the UK it's about 12% of professional engineers are women. I don't know what it's like in the US, but I'm guessing it's maybe on a par. That's still a very low proportion.
1: I think it's a little bit bigger in the US, but it's still not enough, right? We want to use all the best brains, to solve these problems so that means you have to use all the brains <laughs> women men minorities all the best brains have to come and work together with different ideas to deal with what we're going to face in the future so I would like to see a lot more women express interest in engineering be encouraged to do it find what gives them satisfaction as they're doing it, and um, go forward in this marvelous career. It's just a wonderful way to spend your time
2: and your creativity. What challenges do you think women in engineering face? What are the hurdles, the obstacles? I mean, is it just the lack of role models? Are there institutional barriers to more women taking part? Well, I think engineering is hard not just for women. It's hard
1: for men too. To get that kind of training, you have to work hard to be an engineer. That said, women are inherently just as good as the men, so why do they go in other directions? Maybe they feel the challenges of having a family and a career at the same time, but it's a challenge to do anything well. Mm -hmm. Whether you're a parent, you do it well, that's hard to do, and it's hard to have a career and do it well, and anybody mixing all of that together has got to navigate some pretty slippery slopes.
2: Are there any particular moments you remember as a mother trying to juggle family life and your own career that stand out as, oh, how am I going to do this? Well, actually, it's the positive moments that
1: stand out for me. For example, I took an entire year to travel the world with my three sons and my husband. We went to Africa and Australia and the UK. We, actually, we were in Wales for several months and my boys went to school here in the UK. That flexibility came from my research career in engineering and it was the best year of my life. And did you did you
2: drive that? Was that your idea? That was my idea. And you made it happen? I made it happen. You had to take your sons out of school? I did and I was thrilled to be
1: able to do that because they learned five times as much mm-hmm. in that year as they would have being in school. They saw the world, they met people of all different backgrounds. I could watch their brains grow
2: in real time. That's something you recommend? I recommend it. I remember reading an interview, I think it was, um, that you did, where you talked about the importance of networks for women. I mean, what was very notable, I think, in the 2018 Nobel Prize is that we had you winning your share of the Nobel Prize for directed evolution, only the fifth woman to win a chemistry Nobel in history. And the same year was Donna Strickland, who won in physics. Mm. Um, Very, very few women. Um, And suddenly, you know, there you were, very visible on the world stage. Do you think there was a reason for that? Are more women being nominated? Should more women be nominated? I think it's
1: clear that more women are being nominated. There are more senior women now because women went into sciences more 30 years ago and that's continued to grow. So my prediction is that uh, we will see many more big prizes given to women. That's also because more women are being nominated as a result of this recognition that we we should promote women in science because of the need to use all of the brains. And I know many organizations that request nominations of women. There's nothing wrong with that. They shouldn't give the prize just because it's a woman, but we should he- see more nominations because women often don't put themselves forward in the same way that the men are willing to do.
2: And do you think men who are nominating tend to nominate other men? Because we do have, kind of, as we know, lots of male networks... That's right. And women
1: have to form their own networks. It doesn't have to be a woman network, but women need to go out and say, well, I think I could win this prize. Will you nominate me? And cultivate that network that could put together a winning package. You don't get a prize unless you're nominated, and you don't get nominated unless you have a a winning package, and you have to actually put something into that.
2: To make it happen, and I'm going to ask you one last question, <laughs> and right. then I promise you'll be done. What do you do in your downtime? How do you relax? I love to uh,
1: to go into the mountains. I have a wonderful cabin, one room cabin with no electricity, no running water, in the mountains outside of Pasadena. Wow. Uh, we have a lot of mountain lions and bears,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: it's just marvelous to go there, put my feet up. No cell phone reception and just be in this beautiful space as if it were 200 years ago.
2: Wow. Back in nature. back in nature. The thing you admire so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners so please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Bernadetta D'Adonati.